fun. My name is Danny, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's good to see so many faces out here. I know that it's kind of early, and as the day goes, some will leave and some will come back. Um, I want to not just thank LaVon for the kind words she said, but thank her for inviting me or whoever was responsible to get over here. Because I do a lot of service work, and for some reason it's, uh, it's always um, it's part of my recovery, general service I'm talking about. But what happens is sometimes it becomes a job. But this is just fun. This is a this is the fun thing that I do, and it uh, it kind of evolved about five years ago. I always like to start um, by qualifying myself. I am the ex-spouse of two alcoholics. I know for a fact that I am uh, the granddaughter of two alcoholics, and I am the mother of two alcoholics that are in recovery of their own and their own choosing and their own kind. And uh, I have reason to believe now, looking back, that I am the daughter of an alcoholic that found a spiritual solution other than AA, like our book talks about. Um, Now, you might be wondering what all of that has to do with me being here or me being an alcoholic. I can tell you right off the top, nothing, not a thing. It only means that I was, uh, I may have been influenced along the line by these people that were alcoholics, that's all. I was influenced by the disease of alcoholism. The only reason why I'm here today is because I drank alcohol. I have since coming into the program found out that there's a lot of reasons that people come into AA, and all of them are not here for recovery. It doesn't matter how you get here or why you get here. If you are an alcoholic, you are welcome here. But I have had experience over the years to know that everybody here is not here for the same reason that I'm here. And at first that was a shock to me. I really, uh, I just couldn't imagine anyone wanting to be in AA that didn't belong in AA. It's not like I woke up one morning and said, well, I think I'm going to go join AA. That's not how it happened for me. On February the 6th of 1983, I reached my seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that's talked about in the, right in the first forward of the first edition. Alcohol had taken me places that I didn't want to go with, people I didn't want to be with, doing things I didn't want to do. And it had robbed me of everything that money couldn't buy. I had lost practically every moral value and principle that had been given to me growing up or that I may have acquired somewhere along in my adult life. And this happened through my disease of alcoholism, and I had no idea whatsoever that alcohol was my problem. Well, I get to AA, and they tell me that, really, once you don't drink, alcohol is not your problem. The disease is your problem, but what you're going to have problems with is your life. If I didn't know anything else when I got here, I knew that I didn't know how to do life. 
I found out at the age of 17 that I didn't know how to be a wife after I had gotten married. And a year later, I found out I didn't know how to be a mother after my first child. And having four years and three years didn't teach me how to be a mother. It just taught me how to survive with four kids under, under uh, four years old. And I knew somewhere within the depths of my soul that somehow, somewhere, someone was going to find that out. And I started at a very young age, even uh, as, a, as a child, playing that wonderful game, Let's Pretend. And this, this actually was a survival method for me uh, for a lot of years in my life. I don't have a lot of funny stories to tell about my drinking because I didn't drink for a real long time. And um, I'm grateful for that today. But when I got here and I got in the big book, I'm not one of these that had to wait um, two years, three years, five years. I start sponsoring women with a lot of years of sobriety that have never been through the book and have never really found out what the spiritual tools are. And actually what happened was when I first came in, nobody said, you don't have to drink like that anymore. Somebody said to me, you don't have to live like that anymore. And I got some hope from that. And I began to hear a lot about the spiritual tools. And uh, I didn't hear too much about steps or specifics. And I was about nine months sober before I really uh, got into the book. But I think I did that with two of uh, the masters. And that was with Joe and Charlie. And it happened through my sponsor that brought me the message in a little four tape set of their workshop that they used to do right in the beginning when they started doing that. She had a set and uh, she brought that to me. And I was so situated that I could uh, listen to tapes and work at the same time. I had my own business and I would do that. And a whole new world opened up to me. And uh, I would go home after work and I would um, literally get my big book out and check them out. And I began to have a love affair with my big book because what I found out was that I didn't know how to do it and I didn't need to know how to do it and I didn't have to pretend anymore. And as we go through this today, I move pretty fast because I like to try and cover as much as I can. But as through the years, what happened was how this evolved was I found out that the big book gives me strict instructions about every situation in my life. It tells me what to do in the morning. It tells me what to do at night. It tells me what to do through the day. It tells me what my purpose is. It tells me what my next function is. And it tells me what my job is. And you know, for someone just coming in here knowing that I didn't know how to do life, that was a wonderful thing for me. There was more hope in that than anything that I could ever give to you. And if you are new or if you have not experienced 
even a portion of the miracles that are here and available to us. I hope that this will help you today uh, as much or even a portion of how it helped me. Because today there's the answers I know are within me. And that's between me and my God. But there are a lot of questions in the book that we don't really take advantage of to be able to find the, the answers within us. And uh, for me, that was one of my problems. I never seemed to know the, the questions to ask to get the answers that I needed to find out how to operate. And that's real scary whenever you just... And then when you add alcohol to a situation like that, um, I can understand the phrase very well about uh, a tornado because this is how my life was. And I can remember... The day before, the day before I had my last drink, a thought passed through my mind, and it was, God, stop the world and let me off. That's what I wanted. Because it was as though I was just sitting there, and life was going around and around and around. And I just, I wanted to be able to jump off and be part of it. And I didn't know how. I couldn't do that. I didn't know how. And I came here, and from you people, I learned how. I came in not knowing I was an alcoholic, but taking a suggestion that I get in touch with my alcoholism. And I'm here to tell you that after 10 years, I am more alcoholic than I was the first day, because the longer I stay, the more alcoholic I become. And uh, I have experienced some yets in sobriety. And uh, thank God one of them is not having to go back out and drink. Well, since you know a little bit about me, I'm not, I don't talk about my drinking because you know what there is to know about drinking. But I can talk about recovery. And if you want to know what about recovery, it's in here. <laughs> and this is, uh, I used to call it a big, big book because it was big and it had big letters in it. Now I call it my little big book because I cut it in half just so I could have it uh, for my workshop when I do this. I started doing this workshop about five years ago, and the way that came about was strictly um, by, through general service. I was uh, DCM at the time and was responsible for uh, holding a workshop on the principles and promises. It, it was voted on by our district, and they wanted... Um, they combined that, and it was my responsibility to see that that would come about. I was in a position that I was not able to get out a lot, and uh, somewhere along the line I was just made the decision, well, I'm going to do this myself because this was something that was very dear to me. So on the day that it uh, came time, I uh, uh, just suited up and showed up, and I usually always start by saying I'm going to talk until I run out of time or something to out of something to say whichever comes first and Levon has told me that uh, we can go as you know even as late as seven o'clock so if I'm still talking you know uh, which that probably will happen I can uh, <laughs> we'll just go until seven o'clock if we have to or everyone leaves I quit saying uh, I run out of things to say. During the course of the, um, I have a little a little printout that I'm going to pass around, but not now. I see, uh, yeah, okay. 
uh, I'm going to pass this out and it has the prayers on it. But the reason why I'm not going to pass it out is because I want you to pay attention to me. And if I pass it out right away, you're going to sit there reading the prayers. I know I do that. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I like to do that because there's a prayer for everything, you know, that we're having a problem with. <laughs> Everybody knew that, I'm sure. I didn't know that right away. <laughs> but um, if you spend some time in the big book, you'll know that. And before I go any further, I want to introduce Donna. Uh, she just read the preamble, and she's going to be my helper. And what we're going to do today is we're going to we're going to go through the book, and we're going to build the arch that Bill talks about. And uh, so she's going to be my stone mason here, and make sure that all the stones are properly in place as we do that. And uh, it takes two pair of glasses for me these days, and uh, so I just wear one around my neck all the time. And uh, I start off by giving some definitions. And if y'all, uh, you know, would like to write all of this down, you're welcome to. I'll try not to go too fast. If I miss anything, then you can uh, get a tape. And uh, that's always good for reference. The first thing is the definition for principle. Uh, there's in my dictionary, which is the Webster's Dictionary, is what I use to look this up. There was seven definitions for principle, and um, I just picked a couple of them, and one of them is a basic truth, law, or assumption. And the second one that I chose, which I think is um, lends itself to us in the program, is a rule or standard, especially of good behavior, rules of human conduct. And um, so a principle is a rule. I love that rule of human conduct so that I would know, you know, from now on, I'll know what a principle is. And the second one I have definition is for prayer. And uh, I found eight definitions. One is a reverent petition made to a deity or other object of worship, a higher power. The act of making such a petition. And the third one, the one that I like, is a fervent request. Because throughout the book, there are many fervent requests. It's not... uh, written out that you would think all the time that this is a a prayer you know it's not a bunch of words put together in a phrase it's it's just like we ask God it's a fervent request and um, the next word is promise a promise can also be a warning when my children were young I made promises to them And sometimes they were real good promises, and sometimes they were promises of consequences. And a consequence is a learning behavior, is a learning tool. You know, it's not to prove that, uh, you know, a parent is, is bigger or stronger or anything like that. A consequence that we pay is a learning tool even today. It allows me to get down to cause and effect. I think that's how the book puts it. So that if I do something, 
if I do something that is with the principles, there are some effects from that. If I do things against the principles, there are effects from that. And I call that a warning, even though it is a promise also. Um, It says, for promise, a declaration assuring that on will or will, one's will or will not do something. One will or not do something. So right away we know that a promise is, it might be for or against. And the second one that I liked was an indication of future excellence or success. And this starts early in the book uh, because it gives us, as Bill is writing, he never says anything to us that he doesn't give us hope back. If he if he cuts us, you know, takes uh, what I like to think of is pulls the rug out from under me. He always gives me some hope back. And I. Um, I love the style that it's written in the big book. Uh, I am one that believes that it was divinely inspired. There is another big book that we tend to use that is not conference approved from time to time. And there was someone in that book that uh, taught very much like Bill teaches through the book. And uh, one of the things that appears in, in that big, big book and in our big book are parables. And for those who don't know what a parable is, and I'm going to give this because I do refer to it in our book, a parable is a comparison. It draws a parallel between two things. And the definition of parable is the way that we use it. A short fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or or a religion uh, or a principle I like to think of religion as spiritual because I know that for me there's a difference between religion being religious and being spiritual when I was a very religious person and I have been from time to time I was doing a lot of spiritual things and I thought that that made me spiritual and it really didn't there's a difference for me a simple reference of that for me and my life is I've come to know that for me religion came from man and spirituality came from my God And that's the difference in my life. And that's the only thing I have to go on is my experience. We use the word spirit a lot here. And it's mentioned quite often in the book. And uh, it's another word for higher power. We use that word for us. As we go through the book, you'll see that a lot of words are capitalized, especially in the chapter of We Agnostics. And in writing, anytime you capitalize a word, it's in reference to a spiritual being of sort. And Bill uses a lot of different things to refer to um, his higher power. So if you're having trouble finding a higher power, um, 
maybe today you can get in touch with exactly what a higher power can be. Uh, he uses words like high finance and they're capitalized. So at one time, money was Bill's God. He let us know that. He uses broad highway and that's capitalized. And we'll uh, go through some others. And in reference to spirit, spiritual, spiritual things is having to do with the spirit. I listen to a lot of tapes and, you know, I, I'm, um, I heard a speaker last night. I, I was uh, fortunate to go to uh, a group here in town last night. We did that and it was a speaker meeting and, and she was referring to um, her lack of, of um, well, the way I took it was that she, she saw that educated people were more intelligent. And I, that was a, a, I could relate to that because I always, I always looked up to uh, well-educated people. They had a lot of book learning, and I saw that as intelligence. And because I didn't have a lot of book learning, I felt it, it, that I was lesser than these people. And uh, it was almost as though I, I made education, uh, you know, some supreme deal. And I, I was about two years sober when somebody said to me, you know, all that means, I said, well, you know, I, I never did any of that. I never went to school. I never finished high school. I was a high school dropout. And that was one of those things that I hid until I came in here. I mean, I guarded that with my life. It was as though it made me a bad person because I didn't finish high school. And uh, that was one of the first things that I wanted to do whenever I got here. And I did. And uh, I did it real fast. It surprised me. I thought that was going to keep me busy for a long time. And, and I just went and I went to night school and they gave me some tests. And he said, this is it. When it comes, I didn't even have to go to school. And I said, wow. Then I thought I was really smart. And uh, <laughs> in fact, I went crazy. I, I become obsessed by going to school. And I thought, well, you know, I ought to be do doing something more than what I'm doing with my life. You know, I can't believe I've been wasting my time, you know. And anyway, I've stuck my fingers plenty enough times. I'm a seamstress. And so I thought, well, I'm, I started getting books from all these colleges. And my son at the time was doing the same thing. And I'd read all of his. And he came in with one from Australia. And I thought, oh, I might do that, you know. And uh, thank God that I didn't do anything too drastic because I might be in Australia today instead of in Baton Rouge. <laughs> but uh, they they kept in you know, they kept on me real strong about, you know, don't don't make any drastic changes. And I had made a drastic change right away. I had left my home and uh, and my playmate, as they call it, because it was my playmate in my and my play <laughs> playroom. And uh, and I just did AA. And I'm so grateful for that, that I did AA. I lived and worked right across the street from the fellowship house and um I was able to just be at an AA meeting at noon and at night, and uh, since I was close, I, I could open up after a while. I got to have a key, and oh, that was wonderful. And uh, one of the things I learned is that a lot of old cliches that we hear growing up is not always true. I always heard you can go home when you can't go anywhere else, but I can tell you I couldn't go home. A lot of times I couldn't go home. And I lived alone. <laughs> and when you go home and the only one there is you, if you don't love you yet, they're not a good person to live with. <laughs> and so uh, many, many days I would I would just close my business and I would ride around. Well, at first I didn't have a car. I'd walk and I'd go to the shopping centers and, 
and I'd just kill as much time as I could, and then it'd be time for, you know, to make coffee, and I'd go, I'd go to the fellowship house. So, you see, I could go to AA when I couldn't even go home. And this is how much, you know, the program has just, uh, in the beginning it wasn't the program. I see the program and the fellowship as two different things today. And in the beginning of my sobriety, uh, I literally clung to the fellowship. And it never, ever occurred to me that I could go drink and come back, and I'm, I'm glad. Uh, fear got me here, and fear kept me here. Uh, the fear of being out there without alcohol you kept me in here. And uh, I, didn't, I knew I didn't want to drink anymore. And uh, that's when I found out, after I got in the book, that um, not drinking is not the solution to my alcoholism. I used to think that the solution to alcoholism was not drinking. And I know that that's not true today. Uh, It's a part of the solution, but it is not the solution. Because unless I can have a solution for my life, I will drink again. And that's stated very clear. Also, what I'm going to try and touch on, uh, if there happens to be anyone here that has experienced going back out, And uh, the book recommends that we do that if we have any doubts. We can go back out and try it again, you know. And uh, maybe we're not quite ready when we get here, and it takes that, and we come back in. One of the questions that I get asked is, um, I just don't know why I drank. And the book over and over tells us why we drank in a lot of different ways. And so as we go through, there's some little checkpoints that we can check for ourselves. On our, on our progress or once we come back, if we've been out on a slip, when we get back, you know, we can, we can go through that and find out. Uh, I like to open the book on the first page, and it used to be blank. Some of you might have a blank page book. Uh, if you do, the first promise is if you do nothing, you get nothing. And uh, so we want to turn the page real quick. And get to the title page. Hopefully, you're going to keep in mind that uh, I'm not doing a big book workshop. And this was the hardest thing for me right when I started uh, working on this. Because what do you skip? Just what do you skip? And um, so uh, I've just decided that. I'm going to stick with the principles, prayers, and promises, and I touch slightly on other things, but they are very briefly. A lot of times I don't even read the whole paragraph, um, but that's all that I do at this time, and, and hopefully I'll be able to re- move fast enough that we can cover the first seven chapters plus a vision for you. And uh, for any of you, if that would like to go through any of the others if you want to give me a call we'll meet or do a little workshop in my home or your home I'm always available and there's I believe that if you you know for me to be alcoholic like I am alcoholic every word in the big book is for me a lot of people say you know they don't use the the chapter to wives they don't use the chapter to an employer they're not an employer But there's a lot of things in that. And the family afterwards has given us so many things. The family afterwards is one of my favorite because that is a wonderful tool, especially for a newcomer, to get in touch with their own alcoholism. Not 
what's wrong with their family, but what's wrong with them and how they affect their family. And that was, that was wonderful for me. I had no idea how I affected the people around me and the family afterwards. And not just before I got here, but after I got here. The family afterwards deals with that too. So maybe we'll have time to do that today. Okay, on the, on uh, the title page with the circle and triangle, uh, my page starts off Alcoholics Anonymous. The story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And that's the first two promises in the big book. It says that thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. So we're not promised um, relief and we're not promised that we'll just be recovering the rest of our life. It says that these thousands of men and women have recovered. So that means to me that I'm going to, I am going to get well. You know, uh, alcoholism used to be called alcoholic insanity. I don't, uh, I don't analyze and I don't know a lot of fancy words or anything, but I've learned a lot just through other people in listening to tapes and old timers. And the recovery of the program is that we're going to be, we're going to recover from a hopeless state of mind and body. And that has happened to me today. I, I truly believe that I am a recovered alcoholic. It doesn't mean that I'm cured of my disease, but this promise has come true to me. I have recovered from that hopeless state of mind and body. Uh, the contents page. I like to touch on that because it tells us where the solution, where the problem is, where the solution is, and where uh, we get to, the, how we get to the solution from the problem. And I think it's good to touch on this because uh, if you don't have the problem, you don't need to be here. And if you are here and you need to be here and you don't know what the problem is, how are you going to know what the solution is? So. Um, the way the book is laid out and written, in the first, um, in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. We get some tools and some references to look at our alcoholism and, you know, our life and decide whether or not we are alcoholic. I know as a sponsor today that I'm not responsible to convince anyone that they are an alcoholic. The only thing that I try to do is uh, help someone find the truth. For them, And the only way I can do that is to start at the beginning of the book. I know today that I don't, uh, that I am an alcoholic. So I usually start the process by asking myself, what if I'm not? And for me, that's real scary because it's like the next thing that comes into my mind is, well, if I am not an alcoholic, where do I go from here? So what happens to me when I start to work with someone is uh, if they are having this problem, usually my suggestion is, well, why don't we just do this anyway? It seems as though you've tried just about everything else anyway, so maybe you will be convinced. Uh, we agnostics is uh, the solution. And it explains to us in we agnostic very clearly what our solution is going to have to be for the disease and uh, the solution, it does not say, is not drinking. And we're going to be able to look at that. 
And five, six, and seven is the process to get to the solution. And uh, it covers the rest of the steps. So we have step one is the problem, and step two is the solution. And, uh, and then we have the process to get to the solution, if y'all are making notes. Once I get started really going, if I get too fast, y'all are welcome to uh, stop me. Feel free to get up and meander around or whatever if you need to do that. XIII. Some interesting things that I found uh, in going through the big book was um, in, in all of the first 164 pages, the word we is found um, 1,154 times. So I would uh, think very strongly, 1,154 times, that this is a we program. That tells me right off that I might have trouble doing this by myself. So if you are doing that by yourself, um, you might want to consider getting someone else to work with you since it works real good when we can say we and do this together. In the forward to the first edition, we is uh, written 18 times. In, uh, in the forward to the second edition, the word we appears 10 times. Uh, there's in the, the first the first forward to the first edition um, is a page and a half. And basically what this is, uh, what's talked about in here is uh, the experience. So in between the first edition and the second edition, the second edition is six and a half pages. And um, after 20 years, that's how much more experience that they had to give us. And so they, they put that in, uh, into the forward to the second edition. The first 164 pages of the book are the only pages that have not changed. They have been renumbered as far as chapters go, but it has never been changed. So I know that I can count on this, and whenever it talks about precisely how we have recovered, it's meaning the first 164 pages. It gives reference to the stories in the back of the book. It talks about our experience before and after and that's what it's referring to I, I, um, it's you know um, before we recovered and after we get into recovery and um, part of the stories are found in the back and it suggested that we read them but the, it does not contain the program it's the first 164 pages that contains the program because anytime they print another edition the stories in the back of the book are going to change more than likely to reflect the fellowship of that time. That's how it was done. Um, the book, for all you women, I'm sure you realize it, whether the men do or not, is written in the male gender. So we women have to allow for that. Uh, I don't believe there's a difference between men and women alcoholics, but I believe that men and women deal with different things. Um, so I think it's real important, and it's I have found through working with a lot of women that, I mean, they are some tough, tough 
um, I want to use the B word, but I won't. Um, you know, every woman that comes in here is different. It's a special circumstance, you know. Well, you just don't know how it is not to be able to buy your kids the clothes that they want. I said, well, you know, I had I was a single mother with four kids. You think they got the clothes they wanted? No. They didn't even get the clothes I wanted to give them. <laughs> okay. Immediately we start off with some promises. The way I did this was, and probably uh, all of you don't have it, but uh, I know one person in the house that has several colored marker lots. And I use a different color for each thing. And I always bring a set to loan to someone, and I've done that today. So I, I, mark, uh, I mark a lot different colors for prayers, principles, and promises. And it goes real cute. It makes my book very colorful. Uh, they're all color-coded. <clears throat> the very first chapter starts off, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And that's the first promise on this page. To show others, precise, other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So right away it promises that we don't have to figure out. All we have to do is just follow the instructions precisely. And for me, if I do exactly as someone else has done, the outcome is going to be the same usually. And the outcome that we are trying to reach is a spiritual awakening. Because we're going to find that the only solution for our disease is a spiritual one and so that's that's what we're our uh, purpose of going doing this is to find that spiritual solution for our disease uh, the last paragraph in the um, on that on the first page the last sentence of the second paragraph I'm going to try to give references so you can keep up we would like it understood that our alcoholic work is an avocation. I didn't even know what that word meant when I got here. So a dictionary became a very valuable tool for me so that I could look up the words that I didn't understand. Um, and there were a lot that I didn't understand. An avocation, for those who may not have done that, is um, a hobby or something that we just do. For enjoyment, it's it's something in addition to our vocation. We all know what a vocation is. Some people call it a job, others call it a career. But that's what a vocation is. And usually, you know, some of it takes special education, some of it doesn't. So, right here, they're telling us that um, that this this work that we do is not going to be for money. That's what it's telling us. That's a principle. You know, we may go out and we may get a job in this field, but that's a different thing. That's our vocation. But the alcoholic work that we do for our recovery should always be a vocation. And we say for free and for fun. And that's what today is for me.
I'm just here for free and for fun because it's so much fun. I don't know what's worse, being in a room like this with a bunch of strangers or being in a room <laughs> with a bunch of friends. <laughs> I'll have to give some thought to that. <laughs> Next paragraph. When writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge our fellowship to omit his personal name, designating himself instead as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of our traditions came from this. Uh, when I go out and I... Um, and I talk about alcoholics, you know, if I talk about my recovery, I try never, ever, if I'm going somewhere that they know I'm a representative from AA, the first thing I need to remember is that ex- that's exactly what I'm doing. I am representing AA. Uh, it doesn't mean that I speak for AA as a whole, but maybe there's some people out there that the only representation they're going to see to represent AA is me. Uh, we hear a lot about us being an attraction rather than a promotion that AA is. Well, who is AA? I am AA. And so whenever I am out anywhere, if anyone knows that I am AA, their opinion will be based on me. The way I look, the way I speak, the way I act. So I need to remember that whether I'm in a meeting or whether I'm just out in my job, anytime anyone knows that for some reason or the other that I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, hopefully I will be an attraction for this program. So this is one of the principles that I try to remember uh, very strongly that um, sometimes I, I don't even... I mean, I've worked with people that didn't even know that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's hard to do sometimes, uh, to talk about maybe a friend or have people come into my, my business and they are, they're friends from Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, if somebody might say, well, how do you know them? Well, you can't say from Alcoholics Anonymous, even if they know that you're in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because then, then I would be breaking someone else's anonymity. So uh, I try to keep those things in mind any time that I refer to the fact that I happen to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. The next page, XIV, uh, the last sentence in the paragraph, it says, We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. Uh, Bill uses reference to our disease. It's called a disease and uh, a lot in the book. And here... He talks about the disease and affliction. Afflicted means uh, a long-term pain and suffering. That's what uh, that's what affliction means. And uh, so our only, you know, our only wish today, my only wish today, is to be helpful to those who are afflicted. And maybe that uh, that might be someone that is in in the program, in the fellowship already, because. I have I have had uh, some experience with pain and suffering in the program and not drink. And sometimes I think maybe it's worse because, you know, alcohol was a solution for us. And once the alcohol is gone, there's no longer that solution for us. So uh, long term pain and suffering for me before I got here used to be days, weeks, months. I always say I, I didn't have a very low bottom. I had a long bottom. I just kind of hit bottom and skid for about four years. 
And um, so I know what they mean when they say long-term pain and suffering. Uh, Today, long-term pain and suffering is a couple of hours. And if I'm in it that long, that's because I'm not willing to take the action. And it can start with a lot of things. It can start by picking up the phone and calling someone uh, that I, my sponsor or someone that I sponsor or going to a meeting. So there's no reason whatsoever because there's a lot of people that's living by this principle. And that's being helpful to those who are afflicted. And at that time, I am afflicted. If I'm in, in pain and suffering, I am afflicted. The next uh, page, XV. Uh, in the forward to the second edition, uh, I found two promises. Uh, usually the way it's laid out and as we get into the steps, what we're going to realize is that as it's written, uh, we get a principle to live by and then we get a prayer to ask God to help us live by this principle if we are unable to do that. And then we get a promise of what's going to happen if we do live by this principle. And uh, this I, God didn't reveal this to me the first day I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I can tell you all, I have spent some hours in this book. Uh, the second paragraph, close to the bottom, it says, He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry the message to other alcoholics. This is talking about step 12. Step 12 is the only step that uh, is start, that is talked about and referred to us doing immediately is step 12. And this tells us why. Because this is going to be our life-saving tool. And as we go through here, you're going to be able to see how many times it refers to to uh, when to our problems in reference to our problems and what's wrong with us if we do everything that is suggested and it still doesn't work and we are still crazy uh, it tells us to work with others and a lot of people stay sober for a good while just uh, on the fellowship and working with others until they're here long enough to get into the book and uh, and start finding their own solution At the bottom of the page from this, we get some promises. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. Um, The word sponsorship is not used in the book, but that's because they didn't have sponsors. Uh, sponsorship actually started in Cleveland, and that started through um, a need. You know, very rarely does AA ever have anything unless we need it or we see a need for it. And that's, you know, with committees or meetings or whatever it happens to be. And it was in Cleveland after a newspaper article came out in uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, I think it was called, that they had so uh, so many people call and uh, looking for information and wanting to go to meetings that the institution of sponsorship really started. Actually, uh, sponsorship 
has been going on from the beginning when Ebby brought the message to Bill and Bill brought the message to Bob. They were 12-stepping, but they didn't, you know, there's a difference between 12-stepping and sponsorship. I'm not going to go too much into that because I do another whole workshop on that. But uh, sponsorship is when you're, you're willing to make a commitment to a newcomer to be there for them. So that's the difference between sponsorship, kind of briefly, and 12-stepping. Uh, I know a lot of people that do 12-step work, and they go out and they bring the message, and that's what 12-step is, to carry the message, that don't sponsor. They, they do a lot of carrying the message, but they are unable to commit. Because, you know, to take on someone as a sponsor, you know, to be a sponsor to someone, that's saying, you know, I'm going to be there for you. Um, this is one of the references to sponsorship. They don't use the word, but they're referring to sponsorship when it says that um, one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. And strenuous work, one alcoholic with another alcoholic. Now, strenuous work is talking about sponsorship. They're not talking about 12-step. Because uh, a 12-step is not a strenuous um, work. That's just going out, bringing the message. And very very rarely, as we get into uh, working with others, it doesn't even say that, um, you know, it tells us exactly what to do when we get out there. And it, one of the things it tells us is that we don't even mention it. We don't even mention the book or show it to him or talk about AA or anything the first time we go to a prospect unless he shows an interest. We talk about our life and what happened to us. Um, in the middle of the page, it would be the, the last sentence of the um, middle paragraph. At the end of the sentence is another promise. A new life had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. And, uh, and once again, it's telling us what's going to happen or it's, it's referring to what can happen. Um, by following this principle over here of carrying the message, the 12th step. So even though it's in the forward here, further on we're going to, uh, in the 12th step, you can see that these are some 12th step promises that just appear in this forward. On page XIX, um, we, the traditions are called... Uh, spiritual principles for our survival and that's uh, for the survival of AA as a whole that's where the traditions come in and uh, they are they didn't start out with traditions but they saw a need for them and Bill wrote the traditions and he, he literally campaigned to get these adopted the traditions and uh, in the forward to uh right here on this uh, XIX is where it's talked about the traditions and I'm going to go through them in case you would like to uh, see where they they break in this one paragraph we get um, I think it's eight the first one appears uh, in the paragraph before that started on the on the page before it says we had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene and that's tradition one in the next paragraph, it was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society. 
That's step three. I mean, tradition three. That our leaders might serve but never govern. Each group was to be autonomous. That's tradition four. There was to be no professional class or therapy. That's tradition eight. There were to be no fees or dues. Our expenses were to be met by our own voluntary contributions. That's um, seven. (coughs) There was to be the least possible organization even in our service centers. That's nine. Our public relations were to be based upon attraction rather than promotion. That's eleven. It was decided that all members ought to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. That's 12. And in no circumstances should we give endorsement, make alliances, or enter. Okay, the uh, give endorsements and make alliances, that's 5. Or enter public controversies. And that's ten. So this is the gist of where, uh, how the traditions evolved into the twelve traditions that we have today. On the next page, uh, like the second to last paragraph, the last uh, idea there, it's talking in this sentence about uh, religious organizations and uh, the medical field. And it says that even though we don't take any particular view of that ourselves, we cooperate widely with the men of medicine as well as with the men of religion. And one of the reasons why we do that is because that's where we're going to get a lot of our future members from. If we're going to uh, do this like the book says, and it, uh, you'll find that out later, it gives very specific instructions on how to find these people that we work with. And so some of the places that we find that is um, through men of medicine and religion. And uh, there's a lot of other ways, too, but that's two of them. So that's why we want to always cooperate with them. And you know what I have found? There's a lot of sick people, but there's a lot of well people out there. And they say things that are profound without working the steps. Uh, We refer to this as naturally spiritual. (laughs) And sometimes it just, you know, it amazes me how wise people can be and haven't had to do this. The next page. In the middle of the paragraph, upon therapy for the alcoholic himself, we surely have no monopoly. In the beginning, I had to learn this principle um, with heartache, really, because I found out that I was, you know, I was a, a bandstander practically. And really, what happened to me—it's just that AA had had a deal that worked for me. The book refers to to this as. Um, Dr. Young, when we get into uh, in Roland's story, says that there have been 
people that have recovered from severe alcoholism through the ages, and that was before AA came, and the way they did that was they had profound spiritual experiences. So from time to time, there have been people who have recovered from alcoholism through a profound spiritual experience, and they didn't come to AA. What AA did was it gave a solution to the masses to be able to uh, develop and be educated in spiritual principles. And in the um, appendices, it's referred to as um, the educational variety. So we become, our spirit becomes awakened through doing these uh, steps. That's what happens with most of us. Through that, we're going to get some promises. And uh, that's the last sentence in the book. Yet it is our great hope that all those who have as yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book. So it's telling me that there is an answer in the pages of this book for my disease. And will presently join us on the high road to a new freedom. Now this promise is not relief. The book does not ever promise us release. It promises us freedom. Freedom from our disease. Freedom from the insanity. And um, I used to think it was about relief. Oh, I was so relieved when I did my fifth step. How How many have heard that? So... You did a fifth step. You dumped it all on somebody else. What would you do after that? And I used to be the one they dumped it on until I found out better. <laughs> They'd go away, you know, wonderful. And I was sitting there in, in their doo-doo <laughs> trying to figure out, what am I going to do about this? So uh, the solution is in the pages. And I found out that I don't have to do anything about it, you know, that they have a God too. And it doesn't matter how old they are. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do is walk out of a house after a 12-step call and leave a tiny baby on the floor with the mother drunk and out of her head. And know that some, some power was taking care of that child before I got there. It was not for me to start calling child welfare and all that good stuff. You know, that's not that's not my deal. I just deal with alcoholism and I just deal with it with you if you want it from me. If you want what somebody else has, that's fine. You know, I I don't uh, get my feelings hurt about that anymore. In the forward to the third edition, I've already discussed that. Um, This is the only one that was not written by Bill. So right away, I think that Bill really was into the wee bit and that whoever wrote this was not, did not find it quite as important. And we does not appear at all. But we do get two promises out of the, um, the third, forward to the third edition. And the first one is uh, in the third paragraph, right in the beginning. The basic principles of the AA program, it appears, 
holds good for individuals with many different lifestyles, just as the program has brought recovery to those of many different nationalities. It doesn't matter your color, race, creed, sex, gender. The solution is in the pages of this book. Um, it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter the lifestyle that you live. Um, the solution is in the book, in the program. And at the bottom of the page, it says, Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic sharing experience, strength, and hope. And that's, that's really uh, the 12th step that they're talking about again. It's also a reference of sponsorship. You know, when one person is willing to, to share that with another person on a continuing basis. The doctor's opinion. Um, I try to keep in mind that the doctor makes references to things in here that uh, is not is not really program. It's more medical, and he refers to us through his eyes, through the the eyes of a physician, not the eyes of a recovering alcoholic. And I'm going to show you one reference point. Uh, to that in a little bit. In the middle of the page, it says, um, it's the, the paragraph that starts with, in the course. The second sentence says, as part of his rehabilitation, now this is the doctor talking, Dr. Silkworth, uh, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. And that's the 12th step. That's one of the principles of the 12th step. The word impressing is a little bit stronger than suggesting. Uh, He refers to rehabilitation rather than recovery. So that's a difference in the wording that he uses, the doctor uses. Dr. Silkworth wrote this letter, and when he first wrote it, it, it was uh, it was actually to uh, to let the general community and uh, they were trying to get some money. That's what they were doing, and they wanted they wanted uh, some validation. Uh, they wanted to be validated, so they got the doctor to write this letter, and uh, because Dr. Silkworth was Bill's doctor and so he wrote this letter but originally he did not sign the letter because he was more of a a radical at that time Uh, that's why it's called the doctor's opinion this was his opinion about alcoholism today we know that this is an accepted uh, deal about alcoholism that it is a disease and his opinion has become uh, Uh, a fact of the American Medical Association today. But back then, he didn't freely sign his name to this because uh, it was against the beliefs of that time. 
and he didn't want to put his, his practice in jeopardy. When they wrote the book, they went back to Dr. Silkworth again and wanted him to enlarge on it. And this is what it's talking about in here, in the doctor's opinion. So he enlarged on that as an article, really, to go in the book. At the bottom of the page, uh, he's talking about some principles. We favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. I heard an old tape uh, one time that uh, a speaker was talking about. They really felt like a man should be hospitalized when uh, the way that they cleared their mind was they put them in the hospital, whether they were drunk or not, because they felt like they needed to be separated from the alcohol and that it was going to take that time for their mind to clear because it stressed that we do not try to work with a man until his mind has been cleared. And for them, that was to go to the hospital. Today, it's more uh, like to detox. If somebody can afford treatment or has insurance, they go to treatment. Uh, the difference is when they went to the hospital, they usually didn't go for 28 days or 40 days. Like I was in treatment for 40 days and nights. And this was a 28-day program. It still amazes me when I look back at that. Uh, but they went in, and what hospitalization was, was strictly to detox them. Then the next principle is, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, that he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. It has never ceased to amaze me why uh, someone would uh, bring a drunk, knowing he's a drunk, to a meeting. And what I have come to um, understand about that is most of the time when a drunk brings a wet drunk to a meeting, they just don't know what else to do with them. And hopefully they thinking they're going to find someone at that meeting that does. <laughs> and that's usually what happens, is they find someone at the meeting that does know what to do with them. Uh, there have been meetings that I have been to that drunks have walked off of the street and come into the meeting. And sometimes they do become disruptive. And it's, it's my responsible as a member of that group to remember that um, the group is, in, is the most important with the individual a close second. And for that, what I do, if it's a woman, is I let them know that if they would like, maybe they can learn something by listening. And uh, I would be glad to talk with them and allow them to talk after the meeting. If this doesn't work, uh, it is not beyond me to get up and uh, go out with them. Because uh, I know that even though I may need the meeting, uh, I go to meetings today not necessarily because I need them. I go because I enjoy going to meetings. I go to my meetings. That's why. And I feel guilty when I don't. Uh, because then I feel like I'm not being responsible to my group. But... Uh, you know, I can always get up with a meeting and with a, a newcomer that might be drunk and, and take them out 
and uh, let them know that they are welcome and not just, you know, talk about them or put them out or say ugly things in the meeting. That's that's not how it works. There's a way to deal with this. There's always an appropriate way to deal with things. So we want we find out here that we want a man's brain to be uh, cleared. And uh, the principle of this is is uh, that it takes time. Time off of the alcohol. That's how your brain gets cleared. Uh, I think I think we you know if we start talking just like Bill talks about later on about spiritual matters and the God deal and uh, you know the book and the steps that's kind of overwhelming, especially if it's someone that's just come in you know and that still might have a lot of alcohol in them. Uh, the next page XVI down at the bottom of the page. It starts, the paragraph starts, it's like almost a whole paragraph of principles. And the doctor tells us, and if you're one of these people who are wondering why you went out and drank again, this is referring to that. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, this doesn't say the alcoholic drinks because of that reason. It says men and women whether you be alcoholic or not. The reason why men and women drink is because they like the effect that's produced by alcohol. Uh, This deal about the, you know, I I don't know one alcoholic that was drinking for taste. They were drinking for the effect. And uh, that's why I can't understand why somebody would just insist they got to have that fake beer that's supposed to be alcohol free but if you read the label it's really not you know uh, it has a little bit in there (laughs) and uh, I would need to ask myself why do I think it's so important I never drank beer for the taste I drank for the effect so why fake it the next sentence the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false it has been my experience in my life that I still have a problem with that. I think this happens in our disease, that it, it becomes, and I don't think it's about everything in life. In other words, I don't think I have to call my sponsor for her to differentiate the true from the false about everything in my life. And the reason for that is because the book also says that God gave me brains to use, and it also says that we start relying on God. And uh, there are times when I rely on my sponsor. But hopefully I'm always going to rely on God first. And I don't always do it. But, you know, that's the ideal about that. Um, but I know what this means to me is that I have trouble differentiating the true from the false about me. Personally. About my motives, for one. It's real hard for me to be clear of my motives. But since I believe the book and I believe in recovery, I have to believe whenever the book says, we alcoholics are selfish and self-centered people. And it also says that I am undisciplined. And it says that I can't do anything about it. So I believe that. And these 
or where I have the these things is where I have the problem of differentiating true from false with me. Then a couple of sentences it says they are restless, irritable, and discontented until they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So looking at that, they're talking about being restless and irritable and discontent. What makes us as alcoholics different from other people that become restless, irritable, and discontent? Other people, that happens to them too. The second half of that sentence tells us what makes the difference. Once we have used alcohol to influence the for the effect and to take care of being restless, irritable, and discontent, we know what comes with the drink. That sense of ease and comfort when you take that drink. You, you know, I've heard it described all kind of ways, that warm glow. Uh, you know, it's burning all the way down. I love Jim Williams' description of when he takes that drink. It's like, you know, it's a kick to his toes. So it's not just that we become restless, irritable, and discontent. And I get a little nervous when I hear people talk about, well, you know, that's just my disease. I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. The fear in that for me is that I know how to get rid of it. And that's with a drink. I know without a doubt it would go away. But the, the promise of the program and the hope that, that became a, a truth for me in my life is that I know that there is no problem or anything that I'm going through that after the alcohol wears off is going to make, be better. Maybe for a short moment that, uh, that restlessness and irritability is going to be gone, but then it's going to be right back again. And usually it's worse. At the bottom of that same paragraph, it says, unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. So once again, it's, it's referring there to um, the solution to our disease, that it's, it's a spiritual one. They use the word psychic instead of, doc, the doctor uses the word psychic instead of spiritual. But... He remember he's talking in medical terms rather than spiritual terms. Um, the next paragraph at the uh, bottom, the last uh, sentence in that paragraph, a lot of promises are conditional, and uh, and this is one of them. It says. Uh, and this is another reference to the, the way the doctor views us as alcoholics. It says that the man that has been drinking in the way that they do that, all of a sudden, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. And that's a promise. But we know that, as alcoholics, we know that we are really not the one that is controlling that. Because... We may have a lot of choices, but if we are alcoholic, that's the one choice we don't have. And the condition of that promise is 
the promise really is not necessarily for me that I'm going to be able to control my desire for alcohol, but that my desire for alcohol will be controlled for me removed. That's the promise that came to me from that. And the condition is the only effect necessary being a few being that required to follow a few simple rules. And this is a reference to the steps and it is not suggested. It says rules. And for me, the rules are these principles that are laid down in here that that we're studying today that we're picking out. I like to call these principles my design for living because uh, this taught me how to do it. You know, since I didn't know how to do it, (laughs) this taught me how to do it. Um, The next page gives us the classifications of an alcoholic. And uh, it talks about the different types. It says that there's psychopaths. It says it's the one unwilling to admit he cannot drink. Uh, The one that always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can drink without danger. That's another type. Uh, The manic depressive type. Um, Why would Bill put all of this in just those two little short paragraphs? Uh, The last one is the one that everybody tends to grab onto. It says, then there are types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. And for me, I had to add a lack of alcohol had upon me because I had a lot of years without alcohol that I was just uh, really totally insane. And uh, so I had to really look at that for me. I mean, I thought I came in here great. You know, whenever they talked about amends, I thought, oh, well, you know, I just drank for about five years and really hardly no one was around me. Uh, and then, you know, I find out it says that we go back through our life. I said, oh, well. So then I got a clear view of what my life was, even without the alcohol. So remember that if it says that, uh, it doesn't say when we were drinking, when we start doing that inventory. It says, you know, that we go back through our life. In the next paragraph, we get a principle from this. And, and that I think this is real important. It was important for me because I wasn't clear on what alcoholism was. Bill doesn't go into a lot of detail about this. He says the manic depressive type. He's just talking about types. Uh, could, we could write a whole uh, chapter on that. But the reason why he doesn't go into that is stated in this first sentence of the next paragraph. It says, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. So it doesn't matter what type I am. If I'm an alcoholic, this is what makes me an alcoholic. It's that phenomenon of craving. And this occurs in alcoholics and it does not occur in any other person other than the alcoholic. It does not occur in the drug addict. Because as long as we stay without alcohol, the craving is not there. It's only until we are completely cleared of alcohol that the craving goes 